Well, good afternoon. Good to see you here. Um, by way of announcements, I, I meant to mention this this morning, and that is, if you saw in your bulletin, and thankfully some of you did read your bulletin, um, we are going to have the Lord's Table next week. Uh, we're going to do that because the first Sunday in September, I'm swapping pulpits with uh, someone at Grace. They asked if I would come and fill the pulpit, and I told them I would if they would send somebody here. So uh, I won't be here. And if you look at it, there's five Sundays in August, so you know we're still about the same time period that we normally have the Lord's Table. So uh, just prepare your hearts for that reality. Um, the last text I got, it looks like they're planning on sending Trisha's mom home sometime today, um, putting her on some medicine they think will be helpful. So they're still not sure if it's a seizure or not, but we'll see. Anyway, all right, well, that's all the announcements that I have. I trust you all, this the Psalm 104. All right, you did a good job, Ken. Looks like everybody's got one. Uh, we'll sing it to the tune of O Worship the King. It is starting in verse 29 of Psalm 104, which does start on a more down note. When you hide your face, bewildered, they will yearn. But it does get better. I will sing to the Lord, as long as I live, sing praise to my God. So we'll sing it to a worship the King. If you want the music, it's page 13 on the Trinity Hymn Book. Let's stand together as we sing.
Brother Tim, would you please lead us in prayer? Amen. You may be seated. Please turn to that psalm, Psalm 104. We started that song out with verse 29. It's a long-ish psalm, 35 verses. But it's one of the happiest Psalms that we've come across in a while. Uh, not much said. Again, as in Psalm 103. Hey, Ethan, I'll turn this up a little bit. As with Psalm 133, it begins and ends with, Bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist is speaking to himself. It's a healthy thing to speak to yourself. As long as the self who is doing the speaking is exhorting you to praise the Lord. And that's what is going on here. We, we see a very, very healthy worldview here in this chapter. It's, it's kind of like, I think one of the commentators spoke of it as the, the creation week uh, set to music or set to poetry. And, and it's, it is that, and it's, it's more than that. It's also uh, creation and providence. We've already seen the severity uh, side of God. It is, it is not a joy that is uh, divorced from reality of death and decay, but it is a joy in the God who renews the world uh, by his spirit. And as, as Christians, of course, uh, in our worldview... Um, creation is not, not up for debate. We're not here going to have a scientific argument about uh, individual truths that are uh, brought out here. It's, it's just not up for debate. And so the Christian can rejoice in God's manifold works. The title of this psalm could be taken from verse 24. Oh, Yahweh. How manifold or how multitudinous uh, are your works. The earth is full of your riches. 
Or another title that we might drop our eyes down to verse 34 and see this as a meditation, a sweet meditation. It's just a joy to think about the world that God has made and rejoice in it because as image bearers of God, we're created in his image. God rejoices in his own works, doesn't he? Verse 31, we see, and it reminds us of Genesis uh, 1. There at the end, God looks on everything that he has made, and behold, it was very good. And so he has established uh, here the foundations of the earth, I would just, one more thing briefly to notice is the pairing of the establishing of the foundation of the earth uh, with the presence of the angels. Verses 4 and 5, he talks about God's uh, ministers being spirits, flames of fire. And then in verse 5, he talks about the earth being established, uh, reminding us of God's words to Job. In uh, Job 38, when Yahweh finally does speak, he, sa- he, he says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So there's our foundation topic. Declare if you have understanding. And then in verse 7, one of the uh, things that was happening at that time was the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God uh, shouted for joy. So just a parallel between those two things. So Psalm 104, New King James. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hasted away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of Yahweh are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. 
The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Yahweh, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of Yahweh endure forever. May Yahweh rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in Yahweh. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless Yahweh. O my soul, praise Yahweh. Now before Dan comes, take the hymns of grace and turn to 404. 404, my faith has found a resting place. 404. Let's stand together as we...
Nathan, is this working? Can can we do anything with this one? We, is it on now? Hello? No. Can we do anything with this? Testing. Is this one working? Hello? All right, Dan. Use that outdoor voice. Second Chronicles 15.4 But in their distress they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. So let's seek the Lord while he might be found. Brother Ken, would you lead us in a word of prayer, please? If I mention the name Sir Isaac Newton, I wonder what you might be thinking about. You got a picture of a guy sitting in an apple tree, a little knot on his head because the apple dropped on it, and he's sitting there wondering, what caused that to happen? What caused that to happen? Newton was not a very impressive student while at Trinity College in Cambridge. He passed the required classes, but he did not graduate with any honors or with any distinctions, nothing special. So while he worked hard at at, uh, getting through the required classes, he did a self-taught study, a homeschool study, if you might, in studying God's nature and God's creation. And while he was studying these various topics in the natural world, while he was studying about gravity and the laws of motion, and while he was studying about light, it was enough that he would become a Christian. Scripture says we are without uh, excuse. All we have to do is look upon his creation to know that God is God. Newton wanted to study these subjects in order to discover the one single system that would explain everything. Newton declared, 
Gravity explains the motions of the planets, but it cannot explain who sets the planets in motion. As Newton studied, he was able to see God's subtle handiwork everywhere he looked. In the world of the well-ordered world of mathematics, to the almost imperceptible movements of the planets in the Milky Way. He could see God's hand at work. And like his fellow Christian scientist, Johann Kepler, Newton saw himself, as well as Kepler, saying that he was thinking God's thoughts after him. He was thinking God's thoughts after him. By discovering the things in the natural world, by discovering mathematics, by discovering the things that God had put there, he could see what God was thinking about. In the days of Newton and Kepler, science and theology were taught in the same department. Uh, you wouldn't see that on campus today. But science and theology back then were like, like two, two sides of a coin. And they were taught in the same location at the college level. These men and many others like them, for the original 200 or so scientists, um, were actually Christian. These men realized that behind any phenomenon, there is a multitude of causes. There is a multitude of reasons. And there's many purposes that lie behind them. And behind any solitary event, one can find a cause that would be natural and divine that natural causes and the divine causes were coexisting in the same place at the same time. So if you would ask one of them the question, why are there diseases? Or why is there a pandemic? They might respond by saying, well, Germs, bacteria, viruses are all part of the natural world and they cause these calamities. But on the other hand, the other side of the coin, they would respond by saying, we live in a fallen world, a world of sin, a world of decay and evil. We live in a world of destruction and war and disasters because we are sinned against a holy God. And yet behind any given event and their natural causes, it doesn't change the fact that there are also divine and supernatural causes. And the fact that evils of this world may be used by God for his redemptive purposes. Think back, think back to ancient Israel 
And when judgment came to ancient Israel, the destruction and calamity came upon the unrighteous and the righteous both. It even extended to the surrounding nations. However, the striking down or the sparing of any individual in the midst of these calamities did not necessarily mean that this victim was more or less guilty than anyone else. The calamities were not centered on the individual. It was aimed primarily at a culture or a civilization or a nation. The same would be true today with regard to a plague or pandemic. It can have multiple causes, but that does not mean that there are not also sovereign purposes as well as being such as bringing a nation to its repentance. And the fact that there are heavenly purposes doesn't mean that the individual who is touched by COVID, who is struck down by COVID or any other plague or pandemic, is being judged. I think you recall Christ's teaching from the New Testament, and he used the tower that uh, felt collapsed and 18 people were killed. And he said they weren't any more sinful than the other people in Jerusalem. It wasn't that they were being picked on as individuals for their sins. The question rather concerns the judgment of a civilization, again, of an entire generational period of people. I will make it very clear from the outset, I am not a prophet. Nor am I declaring that the current situation we find ourselves in is a judgment from God. But it could be. And at the very least, God is using the current situation to execute his divine will. So if we look around, you may see that we are in the middle of a series of pandemics. The dictionary defines pandemic as a disease or condition that is found in a large part of the population. Today I'll kind of emphasize the word condition as opposed to disease. In 2020, we began with the coronavirus pandemic. And then came the death of George Floyd, which led to a condition of racial pandemic. And this was followed by lockdowns and we suffered an economic pandemic. With the elections of 2020, found ourselves in the middle of a political pandemic. Everywhere we look, we see chaos, conflict, and instability. So turn, if you will, to in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 15. Second Chronicles chapter 15. I'm going to be looking at verses 5 and 6. 
Second Chronicles 15, 5, and 6. We find here a similar situation as our current state of affairs exists today. In those times, there was no peace for him who went out or him who came in, because many disturbances or conditions afflicted all of the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation, and city by city. Now, with a description like that, you would probably expect to find Satan and his minions at the core of this disruption, at the core of these distress, these these uh, uh, horrible conditions. But look at the end of verse six. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. Based on what I've just described to you, I think, it's my opinion, that you and I have been experiencing what is commonly called the passive wrath of God. In the Old Testament, we find the active wrath of God we see God directly coming down to express his displeasure against sin and disobedience. He expresses his anger in a very physical way. We see him raining fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah. He floods the earth with Noah. And then he opens up the earth in order to judge Korah. But in the New Testament, something different happens. The death of Jesus Christ reconciles sinful man to a holy God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19 reads as follows. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the earth to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So as a result of the new covenant, we are more likely to encounter the passive wrath of God used for the purpose of reconciliation. I mentioned earlier that God could use these things as a way of drawing a nation back to himself. I believe that's possibly what he's doing here. Keep in mind that he is the same God. He still hates sin. He still holds us accountable for our actions but he applies the consequences for our sins in a more passive approach. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then further down in that chapter, verses 24 and 28, the same phrase, phrase is repeated. God gave them up. God gave them up. 
That's the passive wrath of God in action. In other words, God released men to live life without him. The passive wrath of God is not fire and brimstone. It is simply God saying, in essence, since you don't want me, I'm going to let you experience life without me. And that might explain some of the chaos we're seeing in our nation, in our culture, and even in our families today. What we've seen is a widening gap between God and his people. The closer God is to a state of affairs, the closer he is to the people, the more ordered life is, the more controlled life is, the more consistent life is. But the further God steps back from the situation, the more chaotic, the more tumultuous, the more hectic it becomes. A good example of this is found right at the beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In verse 1, with God, everything is perfect. Eventually, he will declare, it is good. But if we remove verse 1 and start off with verse 2, we see life without God. If you remove God, all you have left is verse 2. What you have left is a world in chaos, lacking structure, a world in darkness, a world void of anything good. So the question then becomes, why did God cause this distress or his wrath to come upon his people? So turn back to 2 Chronicles 15, and we'll explore this a little bit more. 2 Chronicles 15, verse 3 says, For a long time Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach, and without the law. Why did God bring this distress on his people? He gives three reasons here. First, there was no true God. Now notice it does not say there was no God. It says that there was no true God. The God that they were supposedly worshiping was not the God of the Holy Scriptures. Pastor Walden has been teaching us in the book of Deuteronomy. And he has taught us that when you're not worshiping the true God, you're committing the sin of idolatry. As a rule, we in this country have replaced our small household idols that they used to have in the days of ancient Israel. We've come up with our own American version of idolatry. We've taken idolatry to a whole new level. American idolatry is much more sophisticated. 
And I could list a number of things that would fall underneath idolatry, but I'm only going to mention two. Some have made our nation's racial divide a form of idolatry. An entire money-grabbing industry has grown up around this cause. Now, don't misunderstand me. There has been injustice done in the past in the name of race, and racism continues to raise its ugly head. The fact that slavery still exists in the world today proves racial injustice continues. But there is a godly approach to defeating this pagan idol. As Pastor said this morning, that solution is the love of Christ. Turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 13. Now when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For there certain men came from James. He would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who were the, of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews was also played the hip, hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. We see Peter here, a Jew by birth, eating and fellowshipping with Gentiles. That is, until other Jews showed up. Peter then got up and abandoned the Gentiles because he didn't want to offend his race. You can imagine just how the Gentiles felt at that point. In verse 14, Paul condemns Peter's actions because they insulted the truth of the gospel. Verse 14 says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Pastor Tony Evans, commenting on this passage, said this, Quote, by the truth of the gospel, Paul wasn't talking about salvation. Peter was already saved. You see, there's the content of the gospel that takes you to heaven, but there's also the scope of the gospel that brings heaven to earth. And Peter was, as Tony's words, messing around with the scope of the gospel. And that is why Paul tells Peter in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. End of quote. The cure for idolatry of racism is the love of God, the love of Christ. 
When we place racial or ethnic identity above our identity in Christ, we forget God's grace. When we forget the love of the Son of God, who through his sacrifice reconciled us to God. In other words, we must die to any identity we have that is independent of Christ. Another sophisticated idol we have created is the area of politics. This idol has done more to, in recent years, to divide the church than a lot of other topics. Many people are now placing their faith in political ideology and various partisan movements instead of bending their knee to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. God is neither a Democrat or a Republican. A similar situation was declared to Joshua while he was standing at the walls of Jericho. Joshua looked up and he saw a man standing there with a sword. And Joshua asked the question, Are you for us or are you for our enemy? And the man replied, I'm neither on your side nor am I on their side. I'm captain of the Lord's army. Joshua 5:13-15. The man, which was the pre-incarnate Son of God, is saying basically this: I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. So, we must remember that if God is the source of our distress. It isn't going to matter who sits in the Oval Office. The second reason that God brought distress upon the people, according to 2 Chronicles 15.3, is that Israel was without a teaching priest. Now, there were many men fulfilling that role, but they were not teaching the people divine truth. They were not teaching the word of God to the people. The word of God was not the standard by which the people were being instructed or held to. In our day, it has been a very difficult season for conservative Christians. There have been countless scandals, both minor and major. Some of the scandals were sexual, some financial, rocking all the different parts of the church across the country. And there's even been prominent leaders of the church who have renounced their faith. Very difficult time for Christians in our country today. This is a time of humiliation of confusion, of dishonor, a time we should get low before the Lord rather than a time of boasting and bragging. Recently I was listening to a podcast and it was a group of pastors in a roundtable discussion 
And a question from the audience was, what is the greatest threat to the church today? And after a long pause, people looking back and forth at each other, a particular Calvinist pastor replied, the problem, the biggest threat to the church today is pastors. To summarize his thoughts, he said that the church is allowing men who lack the fear of God in their pulpits. The church is allowing unsaved and men uh, who lack biblical qualifications in their pulpits. And because of this, God will judge us. Remember 1 Peter 4.17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? As a result of allowing these people to enter and lead the church, we have watered down our message to make it acceptable to the world. And when we water down the message, message we rob the message of its convicting and converting power. We've lowered our standards so as not to offend, leaving us stuck in the middle, half-worldly, half-Christian, and we are attacked on both sides by both the world and the saved. So on the surface, we see God's passive wrath upon the church. But I think this might be a good thing. I think there might be a silver lining here. We might be making lemonade from lemons. The humbling of the church could actually be a good sign. As believers, we are being purified by God's refining fire, as in Micah 3, 1 through 5. As the body of Christ, we are being disciplined and judged, not condemned, but judged by the Lord. Hebrews 12, 3 through 13. Could it be that we are being pruned, even if it's painful and necessary, so that we can bring forth even better fruit, as described in John 15, 1 and 2? We are being rebuked and corrected so that God can bring us to a better place. such as he did with the seven churches in the Revelations 2 and 3. Could it be that we are being humbled so that God can lift us up? It's painful, but it's a process that would glorify God, purify the church. I believe that he is preparing his church for something greater than anything we can expect. Greater than anything we can imagine.
The third reason God caused distress is that Israel was without the law. People made up their own rules. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, such as what we found in the book of Judges. Same thing is happening today. We've got no rules. Antifa, the whole premises, anarchy, no rules. We have new rules. The world of wokeness. It's hard to keep up with those rules. They're constantly changing. Your rules, my rules. What's good for you may not be good for me. What is truth to you may not be truth to me. The world is without a standard. And that's because they do not have a divine standard in which to measure their opinions and their actions to. Throughout scripture, whenever God wanted to reorient, reorient or reset things, he would disrupt them first. So I believe this is good news. This disruption that we're going through. So either we're on the verge of the second advent of Christ, where he is now separating the goats from the sheep, or we're looking at a major reset for the church and his people with great things yet to come. There's already, from what I've been reading, a sense where people are returning to the church seeking what can they do. They can't solve these problems on their own. And this may be the instrument that God is going to do to bring people back and perhaps send a revival upon this land. We have no say over the second coming. But 2 Chronicles 15.4 tells us what we should be doing about this godly reset. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel, and they sought him, and he let them find him. He desired his people to look for him, for he is a faithful, for he is a loving for he is a merciful God who seeks to do good for his people. He is our anchor in these times of distress. We have no place else to go but Jesus. So, are you looking? Are you seeking? Are you praying? For this time of distress is what God wants us to do. Let us pray. Lord God, you are sitting on the throne and you are in control. And we bow down before you and praise the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And Lord, this seems so many things going on around us and we seem to bump into 
one problem after another. But Lord, we know that you have a plan and that plan will bring glory to your name and it will bring good to our lives. So Lord, while we may get frustrated, we may become uncertain, we can always depend upon you. Lord God, we pray that you would hear us, increase our faith, increase our trust. Lord God, maybe we be bold and share the love of Christ with others. In Jesus' name, amen. God has all the answers we need as we trust Him and and seek to be obedient to Him. Let's turn to 719 in closing. 719, a shelter in the time of storms. 719. Let's stand together as we sing.